This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. All right, how many of you know that song? How many of you like that song? How many of you, like me, were six when that song came out? All right, I had a junior hire up here in the morning service, and when that song came on, she put her phone up to hear what it was so that her phone would recognize it. So we have a whole new generation of REM fans coming out. It's very exciting. Uh, It is the beginning of a new series. If we haven't met yet, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so excited that you came today. This is my favorite day of the week. I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, we are talking on this new series, Heaven, Hell, the End of the World. And I thought, what better way to start then than with a little REM? Uh, if you have any idea what the verses say and they're inappropriate, that's fine. You can come tell me. I don't know what they say. I just really like that chorus. It gets me going. Uh, if you're new to New Life, big welcome. So glad you're here. Like Justin said, we have those Connect cards. Make sure to get that filled out. I'll tell you what to do with it a little bit later. I have something that I have to tell you that has nothing to do with this series, but if I hold it in too much longer, I'm just going to burst. So if you're a clapper, get ready to clap. No, we're not pregnant. Uh, (laughs) That'd be a miracle. I'm not pregnant. My wife's not pregnant. That's not it. If you're not a clapper, or if you were raised in a church or went to a church where you weren't allowed to clap because I told you your hands would fall off or something, it's a lie. Your hands won't fall off. You'll be okay. Last week, we tried to raise— $10,000 as a church community to build a church in southern India for a ministry that we partner with. Uh, We found out that this community that we partner with in southern India had 65 people meeting in a church that was about 20 feet by 10 feet. So if you can imagine one person on every square in this room with nowhere to go, that was their church. And so they said for $10,000 we could build a new church. Friends, we didn't raise $10,000. We raised $17,898. Yeah, it is... It's fantastic. And I wish you could be with me. I get to make a conference call this week to a pastor in India to tell him how much money was raised and to bless them with that money. I wish you could be there because really this is us as a community blessing another community. It's not me. I was just part of what God was doing through us and he's doing some incredible stuff. We almost doubled it. That, oh man, I am just so excited. I hope you're excited about that. I trust that God is blessing you as you are giving generously and blessing other people and that you really encountered him through that whole process. So, uh, like I said, good job. Well done, church. I love my church. I love Sundays. I love being with you guys. And there's really no better way to be than here right now connecting with God as we kick off this new series, Heaven, Hell, and the End of the World. And I know that we've all had questions at some point about, if not about the end of the world, about at least your end of the world. If you're like me, you've laid in bed at some point, just kind of wondered, you know, in the darkness, what will eternity be like? Is there an eternity? I feel like the ceiling could be 100 miles away or could be right on top of me. It's so pitch black. And I had one of those experiences recently where I thought, is this eternity just blackness? Maybe you had a a friend or a family member pass away unexpectedly, and it brought up questions about mortality. Maybe you hit 30, and your knees and your back started to hurt, and you had questions about the end. Well, we're going to be talking for the next four weeks about 
the end of the world, big picture the end, because the Bible says that at some point, the world as we know it is going to end, that Jesus is going to actually come back, and we'll talk about this more next week, but somehow wrap things up here and take everybody and do something with them. But I'm not going to tell you what, you got to come back next week. And so I want to talk for a little bit about what the end of the world could be like. Uh, the different perspectives, if you follow things like the Mayan calendar, you know that the Mayan calendar ends on December 21st of this year. And according to the Mayans, that could be the end of the world. And if you subscribe to that, I mean, Christmas is going to suck for you. It's like, because you're not going to buy presents for anybody, and then it's not going to happen on the 21st, and you're going to look like a big jerk. So just go ahead and buy the presents. Or, you know, um, that was pretty funny. Good. I'm glad you laughed. I thought that was pretty funny, too. I didn't offend. You're not running out the doors yet. So that's good. So the question actually underlying the question. So the question is, what will the end be like? But the question that underlines the question for us for the rest of this teaching series, which will be four weeks long, is this question. How does the reality of that day— of, of an end to the world as we know it, or even how does the reality of an end to my world as I know it, how does it affect me on this day? Should the reality of that day affect today? Should I be living my life today with an end game in mind? Because whether or not you believe in an end of the world, I know we all believe in my end to the world. Your end to the world could be in 30, 40, 50 years. It could be in 30, 40, 50 minutes. It's going to end at some point. And so the question we have to ask is, should that day have any effect on today? Should that day affect the way that I interact with my kids, with my husband or my wife? Should the reality of an end someday affect the way that I work at my job today? Should the reality of that day affect the way that I engage with my, my friends, acquaintances, enemies? Should the reality of that day have some sort of impact on the way I explore and experience the realities of God in my life? These aren't new questions. They're really good questions, but they aren't necessarily new questions. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was sitting by himself after talking about the end that day. And his disciples came to him and they asked him some similar questions. So we're going to look at them in Matthew chapter 24. By the way, you've got teaching notes in your programs. You can pull those out and you can use those. You can write in the margins. You can take notes and take it home with you. That's a little gift from me to you. Matthew 24, verse 3 says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples, his followers, these 12 guys who he shared life with, they came up to him privately. They said, Tell us, when will these things happen? That's that day, the end. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In the coming weeks, we're going to start to unpack that. What are some of the signs of Jesus coming? Can we know when that end will come? How can we know? What's that look like? What are the different perspectives? What are the different views? Do we all have to agree on them? Is that the way the answer is no? The way you view that day doesn't necessarily decide whether or not you're going to be with God that day. It's just some interesting things to be thinking about. The big question is, how do I live this day in light of that day? But the Bible does talk a lot about that day, about the 
end of the world. There are some 2,000 prophecies in the Bible talking about that day. That's nearly a third of the Bible that talks just about Jesus's second coming. That second coming when he'll come and the world as we know it will end. But even though a third of the Bible talks about prophecy, if you've been around the church for any period of time, you'll know that I don't spend a lot of time unpacking prophecy, talking about prophecy, especially end-of-the-world prophecy. See, I think that churches fall on one of two spectrums. On one side, they have the church that never talks about the end of the world. And on the other side, we have the church that always talks about the end of the world. My parents go to a church, and, and it's a great church. I gave my life to the Lord in this church. I really started to follow God in this church. But they used to joke that when attendance started to go down, the pastor would just talk about the end of the world and kind of get things going back up because that was an attendance boost. So like once every six months or so, hey, we're doing an end of the world series. Get ready. And I'll be honest with you, I have avoided talking about prophecy for a number of reasons, and the reasons I've avoided talking about them are probably the same reasons that some of us are sitting in our chairs squirming a little bit when we think about prophecy. So I just want to lay those out now, get them out there so we can talk about them, and move on. The first is this. We don't know who to trust because there are a lot of weird people who claim that they have the answers to prophecy. There was a guy named Harold Camping who lives in Oakland who said that 2011, May 2011, was going to be the end of the world, May 21st, and he put billboards up and bus signs and a radio and everything else, and his tagline was, the Bible guarantees it. This is the end, May 21st, 2011, the Bible guarantees it. Guess what? He was wrong. Jesse Ventura, who was a pro wrestler back when I was a kid, turned governor of Minnesota, now has a TV show that's all about conspiracy theories, all about the end of the world and what's happening, how the government's taking us down. Guess what? They're all wrong. Those are just like some of the, the big ones. The Mayan calendar. Guess what? Buy your Christmas presents, people, or else you're going to look like a jerk. It's probably not going to happen on December 21st, 2012. Those are the big ones, but there are a ton of them. I googled end of the world and got 272 million hits about the end of the world. We don't know who to trust. We just don't. People have predicted thousands of times that the world would end, and they've been right zeros of times. This many times, because we're all still here. In fact, this is what Jesus says about the day that the world will end. In Matthew 24, 46, he says, That day, the day the world will end, and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son. He's talking about himself. But the Father alone knows that day. So Jesus, when he was here on earth, said, The angels don't know the day that the world will end in terms of the exact day, time. Not even me in my humanity know the exact day and time. Only God knows. So we stay away from it because people claim to have insider information. And if anyone ever tells you, you know what? I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt when the world's going to end. They are full of something and it's not wisdom. They are just being dumb. Another reason is prophecy is scary and we want to stick to the happy stuff. We like it when Jesus is shaking hands and kissing babies. We like it when Jesus is giving out food and having a good time. We like the happy stuff, and prophecy can be a little bit scary, especially when we look at books like Isaiah or Revelation, where there's like monsters and pictures, and we're like, what does that mean? It's big, big prophetic language. We don't really know how to read it, so we kind of skip over it. It can be scary, but I want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, prophecy has nothing but good news for you. 
the reality that someday Jesus will come back, and the Bible says he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more grief, no more pain, no more loss. You'll be, you'll be face to face with your creator. That's nothing but good news for you. And if you're here tonight, and you are not a Jesus person, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you, I am so glad you're here. I literally couldn't be more happy that you're here. We actually built this place for you. We built this church for people to come and explore and experience the realities of Jesus. You're not going to hear me condemn you or look down on you or anything else, but I will say this. I want to encourage you, take the things that we're talking about seriously when you weigh out whether or not you want to be a follower of Jesus, because there is going to be an end, and that end does have eternal consequences based on the decisions that we make now. Another reason why I stay away from prophecy and why you probably stay away from it is it's controversial. It's like politics, money, and prophecy are the three things we can't talk about at the table anymore. You know, it's like everybody has their own views. But I realized that if I ignore prophecy, and if as a church we don't ever talk about Jesus' second coming, we're going to miss out on a third of the Bible. And we can't, we can't explore God and not look at a third of what he says. In the New Testament alone, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus' second coming, or allusions to a second coming, or stories about his second coming. And so we thought, let's dive into what Jesus says about his second coming. And one thing we know for sure is we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. So we can just kind of throw that out. But what can we learn from what Jesus says? Because Jesus talks a lot about his second coming. Usually he talks about it in reference to how we should live today. And in Matthew chapter 25, and we just looked at Matthew 24 a little bit when Jesus said, no one knows the hour or day except God the Father. He goes on in Matthew 25 to say, but this is what it's going to be like. He tells a parable, and the parable is a story that has a main point. He uses everyday language. In this instance, he's talking about a wedding. And he says there are some characters here that represent other characters, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes. And this has a main point about my second coming. So he tells this story about a wedding where something goes wrong. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet a bridegroom. And to understand why, it's, why this is happening, what's going on here, we need to know the context. See, in the ancient world, in the Near Eastern world, they weren't so much time-oriented as they were relationship-oriented. And so uh, I married, by the way, a Middle Eastern woman, and so I know this firsthand, that when you go to be with her family, you're not so much by the clock, which is hard for me because I'm very time-oriented. You are relationship-oriented. The party starts when people get there, and the party ends when the people leave. So we're in a relationally-oriented culture, and we're in a culture that doesn't really have watches. They don't have clocks on the walls. Very few people had sundials. So what they would say is, the wedding's going to start in the afternoon, or the wedding's going to start in the evening. Now add on top of that the fact that most marriages were arranged in that day. So the bride and groom may have met once or twice. They may not have met. The groom may be from another village coming over to marry the bride. So the bride's maids were helpful to the bride because they would go out with these lamps and they would wait for the groom to come. If the wedding was going to start sometime in the evening, they'd go out with these lamps and they'd wait at the edge of the city for the groom to come. And when the groom came, the bridesmaids would march him through the city and all the people would say, hey, the groom's here, the party can start. Very exciting. And they'd all come out and they'd go to this big party. So that's the context that we're talking about tonight. It can be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, five of them were foolish, and five of them were prudent, or they were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, and the oil was the thing that would keep the lamp burning. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delayed, he was like taking a bath and washing his hair. I don't know what he was doing. They all got drowsy, and they began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Verse 7 says, Then all those virgins rose up, and they trimmed their lamps. They got them lit. And the foolish said to the prudent, or to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Remember, this is late at night. It's midnight. The dealers didn't have their oil shops open. There was no 7-Eleven on the corner. They'd have to go wake up the dealer, get him out of bed, get the oil, and get back. And so that's exactly what they did. Verse 10, and while they were going away to make their purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into the wedding feast with him. And then the door was shut. And the door was shut because they would start usually a week-long party and feast where the bridegroom would provide the food and the booze, and it was all free. And so they would lock the door because— have you ever seen the movie Wedding Crashers? Yeah, me either. I've never seen it either. Um, But I've been told— that if there's free food and free booze, people are going to try to crash your wedding. And so what they would do is they'd get all the guests in. They'd see the groom coming down. They'd get all the guests in, and they'd lock the doors for this week-long celebration. And it was a party. Verse 11 says, Later the other virgins also came back, and they said, Lord, Lord, open up the door for us. But he answered them, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. And that's true. He probably had never met them before. He thought they were wedding crashers. They were outsiders. They weren't part of the group. And Jesus closes by saying, Be on alert, because you do not know the day or the hour of my return. See, in this story, Jesus is the groom, and we are the bridesmaids waiting for him to come. And just like the people didn't know when the groom was going to come, we don't know exactly when Jesus is going to come. And if we're foolish, we won't be ready for him. And if we are wise, we will. See, we don't know when Jesus will come back, but we do know that Jesus will come back one day. Over and over again, he says it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. One day I'll come back. Be ready. See, if we believe in that day, we get ready today. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this about the day Jesus is going to come back. In verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Next week, Ron's going to talk about various views of how this is going to happen, what it could look like when Jesus comes back. But today, we just need to know he's going to come back someday. And I did something really mean. This is uh, both a story and a confession. When I was in my early 20s, a friend of mine named Matt— was not a follower of Jesus, and through the Bible study that I led, he became a follower of Jesus. It was very exciting. And he lived with uh, a group of guys, and one night we were talking about the second coming of Jesus, and we read this scripture, how there's going to be a shout and like a slamming of a door and trumpets, and everybody will be gone. And so that night he went to bed, and myself and some of his roommates decided that we would lay out clothes in little piles around the house. And then when he was sleeping— 
that we would slam the door and then we would hide. So when he came out, he would think that we all got raptured without him, that we all got taken up to be with Jesus. And it was mean and it was hilarious. So I say that both by way of story and confession. Oh man, it was funny. We know that Jesus will come back someday. And we don't know when that day is going to be. But we know that we should be ready for him when he comes. See, the reality of that day should stir us to action today. My wife Maria has a cousin, and last week we got a call that when he and his wife, he's 48, were actually in uh, Ireland, and they were on vacation. They took a picture at the base of a mountain, and then they were going to hike the mountain. And they took a picture, and right after they took that picture, he fell over dead of a heart attack. Done. They couldn't revive him. They couldn't bring him back. He has two college-age daughters and one high school-age daughter. We don't know when that day will be, but the truth is we actually don't know when that day will be for us. And the reality of that day for us could be closer than we'd like to think. See, the bridesmaids had plenty of time to get ready. They could have gone and gotten the oil. They could have had their reserves full so that when the bridegroom came, they were ready to go in and celebrate with him, but they were foolish and they didn't prepare themselves. And see, from time to time, we need to replenish our own lives because our spiritual reserves can start to get down. And if we're not careful, our spiritual tanks can begin to run out. And friend, it would be a tragic day if Jesus came back, either for us or for you, and your spiritual reserve was empty which in my opinion should beg the question, how can we keep our spiritual reserves full? And here's what I know about you. Because you're like me. You would never say to me, Kevin, I want to have a bad, meaningless, boring, uninspired, dysfunctional life. You would, ne- you would never say that to me. You'd have to be crazy. If you're a Jesus follower tonight, you would never say, Kevin... Man, I just, I I really want to have a boring, impersonal, religious experience with a deity that seems very distant and cold and separated from me. You just wouldn't say that. If you're a Jesus follower, you would say, I want to have a real, deep, passionate, personal relationship with my creator, my sustainer, and my savior. And whether you're a Jesus follower or not tonight, I guarantee you would never say things like this to me. You'd never say, Kevin, I really want to have a broken marriage. Man, Kevin, I hope I can be a bad husband. I hope my kids will not respect me and won't want to spend time with me. I want to be a bad wife, a bad mom. Kevin, I hope I can someday have an uninspired job or I'm just working for the weekend. You'd never say things like, Kevin, I want to be locked into anger or bitterness. Kevin, I love gossiping about people and then having to watch my back all the time. It's just so fun. Kevin, I love Christmas where I have to avoid certain family members because I haven't forgiven them. You would never say that to me. You would say, Kevin, I want to have a good relationship with my family. 
I want to be a good husband, a good father. I want to have a, a, a job that gives me some purpose. I want to forgive people. But we don't do those things. We would never say we want those things, and yet most of us in this room can identify with at least one of those things. And here's why. We drift. If we're not careful, we, we drift into them because we're not actively keeping our spiritual reserves high. And Jesus says, watch out for the drift. Don't fall asleep. Don't let your spiritual tank drop down to empty. Because someday it's all going to end and you're going to look back with regret. And I don't want that for you. So I'm going to tell you, whether you're a Jesus follower tonight or not, I'm going to tell you some ways that you can improve your marriage, your relationship with your kids or your friends or your roommates. You can have more passion in life. You can have more joy. I'm going to tell you a way that if you want to, you can draw closer to the very real God of this world. If you want to. That you could do that. I'm going to give you three things you could do, and you could do that. But I'm going to tell you right now, you have to be intentional about it. You're not going to drift into these things. The first is this. If you want to fix those things in your life, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, get into God's Word and pray on a regular basis. You don't have to believe that everything in the Bible is inspired or true to read the Bible. If that was your litmus test for reading a book, you'd never read anything. So I'm just challenging you, read the Bible every day and see if there aren't some things in there that help you in the areas that I was talking about. And then pray. Engage with God on a regular basis. The Bible says over and over again, do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God's will is, because his will is good and perfect and pleasing. And it says things like, there's a king who wrote this great poem, and he said, just like a deer pants for water, my soul, it just longs for God. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to just to long for him. It's like a deer needs water. He says, we need to be in his word in the Bible. But you won't do it by accident. You won't all of a sudden just fall into reading your Bible every day. You have to actively choose it. And the second one is this. Get into a life group. A life group is just a group of 10 to 20 people that meet together for three months, for 12 weeks. We study some aspect of life and faith and God. We're all going on a similar journey. We're all at different stages in the journey, but we're walking in the same direction. And we do three life group sessions a year. One in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall. We just finished our summer session. We're just launching our fall session. So for the next four months, we're going to do what we're calling life group promotion month. In front of you, in your seat backs, you're going to see a life group promotion catalog. It's got 23 different groups in it. Go ahead and pull that out right now. Remember, this is an active thing. This is an action thing. Pull this out. Open it up to the second set of pages, page four and five. It's got these blue and white stripes on it. Friends, there are groups for everyone in here. Every stage of life. And there are groups that will benefit your life in incredible ways if you would join one of them. Now, I want to highlight one thing in here. See, this is our life groups at a glance, and you can see all the different groups, what the group's called, 
who, what the demographic is, which city it's meeting in, the day, the time, whether or not they have child care, and then the page that these groups are on, which gives you a more detailed description in the rest of the catalog. But I want to highlight one thing. There are four groups where it says core, and there are four groups that say yes. At New Life, we are launching something that we've been working on for just over a year now called Core Curriculum. Imagine it like being in college. Uh, when you go to college, you have a major, and you have to take classes in your major, but there are classes that they would say everyone who goes to college has to take. You have to take a math class, you have to take an English class, you have to take biology, which is just horrible. You just have to take them. The core curriculum are classes that we think, they're life groups that we think every person should take at some point in their journey with God at New Life. They're that important. They're that important. And so what we're suggesting is that at least once a year, so one of these three sessions, you take a core curriculum class. There are nine of them. We're offering four this fall. And if you took one a year, it would take you nine years to get through all the core curriculum. If you want to take them quicker than that, you can. But we're suggesting take a journey. Become a well-rounded follower of Jesus by taking our core curriculum. So I want to encourage you, look at those. Think about jumping into one of those. In just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to sign up for a life group. How exciting is that? Yeah, is that exciting? Yeah, it's woohoo exciting. I agree. Here's how you're going to do it. Pull out the Start Here card that Justin talked about. Remember, this is active. Pull it out. Wave it. Wave it around your head like a helicopter. Come on, throw it up there. Thank you, people. That's what I like to see. It's from a rap song. We aren't going to talk about that. On the back, it says, I want to apply today's teaching by, and at the bottom, it says, I want to join life group number, and there's a blank. So what I was going to do is we're going to play that awesome REM song that I'm really fired up about, End of the World as We Know It. While it's playing, I want you to talk amongst yourselves. I want you to read through the life group catalog. Find a group that's right for you. When you find the group that's right for you, right above the title of the group is the code. So if you were going to join Monday, group one, the code is MON-01. Monday group 2, M-O-N dash O-2. When you find the group that you want to join, you just write the code right there on your Connect card, and that's it. You're signed up for a group. It's that simple. Or your leader will contact you later on this week. I want to tell you, groups are the place where we stop coming to church and we start being the church community that God called us to be. Groups are the place where we party together. We serve together. We ask tough questions. We pray for each other. We share life together. If you're not in a group, and by the way, no one's in a group right now. All of our groups for the summer ended, and we're starting all new groups up this fall. So you're not coming in late to a group. It's not like they all know each other and you're brand new. We're all starting this for the first time. Join a group. For those of you who get stuck in the same type of group, you're like me. My wife and I were in a marriage group since the first day we got married, which was six years next month. We'd always been in a marriage group. We liked marriage groups. They were comfortable. They were known. Well, this last summer, we decided she was going to join a women's group and I was going to join a men's group. And it was scary for me because the men that led the group were construction workers and military guys. Three of them owned a knife shop. I'm not making this up. And then there was me. I'm like, hey, everybody, good to see you. You know, it's like I got plaid on. Does that make me like construction-y? I don't know. I was nervous. But joining that group, taking that risk to try something new, that was probably one of my favorite groups that I've been in in the last two years. I mean, it was so, so good for me. So I want to encourage you, if you're in that rut, try something new. Take a core curriculum. Try a group. All right, one last thing, one last way to really experience the fullness of life that God wants for you, and that's this. Get into church every week. Get into church every week. It's not rocket science, people. How many of you ever missed church for a couple of weeks, a week or two, and you felt like, man— 
I just feel kind of disconnected from God. My kids are starting to act up. My wife is getting on my nerves. Or like, I don't know, your husband's getting on your nerves. I don't know what it is. And you think, what was the last time I was spending time with God on my own or in a small group or going to church? Missing out on church means that we're missing out on communal worship, which is something that God calls us to over and over again in the Bible. It means that we're missing out on group teaching, which is what God calls us to over and over again in the Bible. We're missing out on the unity and the vision and the fun of being together. I want to encourage you, make church a priority. So here's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Is the reality of that day, whether it's the day that this whole thing ends or the day that your whole thing ends, is the reality of that day impacting this day for you? Here's how you know. Is your life what you hoped it would be? Is your relationship with those closest to you what you want it to be? Is your job where it should be? Are you, are you find yourselves in patterns or habits of anger or destruction or pain or fear or loneliness or greed or lying? Do those things seem to just keep coming up over and over and over again? Do you feel apathetic? Do you feel distant from God? If any of those things is happening, you're drifting. And I would tell you, don't drift. Unless you like the outcome. If you like the outcome, keep on drifting. But if you don't like the outcome, become an active participant in your life and do what the Bible says in 1 Timothy. Take hold of the life that you were called to. Tonight, I wonder if some of us need to lay down some of those painful things in our lives. We're going to have some worship time in just a second. The team's going to come back up. And if you're just holding on to things, pain, regret, anger, hurt, lack of forgiveness. Maybe you hurt somebody else and you need to go and talk to them. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to experience full forgiveness and freedom and joy and peace and purpose and vision. But that only comes when you get those things out of the center of your life. And the only way to get those things out of the center of your life is to put God into the center of your life. So if you're here tonight and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the first step. That's the first step to experiencing the life that God wants for you. It's the first step to knowing what will happen to you when that day eventually comes. The Bible says that when we were enemies of God, God sent his only son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life to show us what it means to be in relationship with God. And then it says that Jesus died on a cross, the most brutal death, murdered by those that he had created. And that three days later, he rose again, breaking the power of sin and death and destruction in our lives and opening the door for us to enter into a personal relationship with God. And I want to give you that same opportunity tonight. The invitation is there. God could not love you more than he does right now. He loves you with an incredible love. He loves you with a love so deep that he gave his only son to die for you. He loves you with a love so deep that not even death could hold Jesus in the grave, but his love brought him back so that we could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And if you've never had that experience, a personal relationship with Jesus, I'm going to pray in just a second, and you can invite God to be the Lord and the leader of your life. After that, the worship team is going to come, and we're going to spend time worshiping and just kind of dealing with any of the stuff that's come up for you. And I want to encourage you, find that life group that's right for you. Come talk to me. Talk to the red shirts. Look online. But don't let this time pass you by. Find a group. Commit to being at church. Commit to joining a group. And if you made a decision to be a follower of Jesus tonight, would you mark down your card? Because we want to follow up with you. Because we want to share this journey with you. So would you join me? And let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Lord, I'm really thankful that you don't tell us the day that either our worlds as we know it will end or the world as we know it will end, because I don't think I'd be able to live in today if I knew that day uh, exactly. And I know you want me and you want us to experience fullness today. But Lord, would the reality of that day have an impact on this day? Because that day is coming, because one day we'll stand before you, would it impact the way we live today? Would you help us to not drift through life, but to take hold of the life that you've called us to? As we continue to pray tonight, if you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus— not your husbands or your wives or your kids or your parents, but a relationship where you can say, you know what? I have asked Jesus to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, those destructive patterns that have separated me from him. If you've never made that kind of commitment, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. So if you sense God stirring you and drawing you to himself, if what I'm saying resonates with you, you can pray this simple prayer after me, and it's a prayer of commitment. Right where you're sitting, you can either whisper it out loud or you can say it inside your heart, inside your head. But if you sense God calling you, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on a cross and rose again to bring forgiveness for my sins. And I believe you're inviting me into a personal relationship with you. And today I want that. So I ask you, Lord, to come into my life, to lead me and guide me, to forgive me of the destructive, painful, hurtful things that I've done. And I ask that your spirit, the spirit of God, would come and would fill me and would lead me to the life that you've called me to. So that I can live today with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.